The Finding Holy podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. Whatever you do, let it be done with good consideration. Let it be born of wisdom from beginning to end and all the parts between. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's episode was preached by John Whitcliffe in England in the early 1300s. Joel, plagues, disease, and outbreaks, these are something that are just a part of human history, and it was just something that everyone kind of had to be aware of, almost as if, like, it might rain this week, let's, you know, watch the clouds. A disease outbreak might happen and kill a bunch of people. That's just something that was a part of human history, and it still, in a lot of ways, is. But if there is any disease that I think just terrifies us, that it just gets to you, it's the one you don't want to ever you know, come in contact with. It's the one area that you would have never wanted to deal with. It's the Black Death, the bubonic plague. It literally, the name just sounds disturbing, right? And we've covered this awful disease in our episode on Johann Tauler. And it's a definite must listen if you haven't. It's actually voiced by the same gentleman who is doing this episode we're about to listen to. But there's pretty much no end to how much this disease could be studied or talked about. There's no other outbreak that changed humanity like this one did. Uh, today's episode is going to go into this and in, into detail again. And I have to admit, I thought I knew the story of John Wycliffe. I thought I was pretty familiar with his history and his uh, his fame, but. I didn't know just how much the Black Death, which just terrorized and destroyed Europe, is actually the reason the Bible got translated, and it actually is what leads to the Reformation. And we wouldn't have had all these things happen had the Black Death not affected John Wycliffe so personally. That's right. So Black Plague, we're going back to the 1300s, right? John Wycliffe was born in 1328 in Yorkshire, England, and he died in 1384. So mid, right in the middle of the 1300s. Wycliffe had kind of a tough upbringing, but it wasn't because of his family, which is typically the case on Revive Thoughts. When we talk about people having a you know, tough upbringing. It's because they have really bad, you know, struggles in the house, in the home, in the family. Wycliffe's family was actually uh, pretty supportive and, and, you know, pretty well off. But he was raised in a time, again, where disease is rampant. And as we'll get into uh, in this part of town, riots are are rampant. There's a violence problem in these areas that he grew up in. And so uh, kind of an interesting upbringing that we'll dip into a little bit of these interactions that he had. He went to Oxford, and Oxford played a huge role in his life. He specifically read a book about grace that really kind of challenged his thinking. He grew up in, in a strict Roman Catholic tradition, so these heavy concepts of God's grace is, is a little bit out of the way for that time period, and uh, this, this idea of grace kind of clung to him and stuck to him and really affected how he saw life, especially further on down the road. But nothing changed him like the Black Death. Uh, people would even say about him later on in his life that this event destroyed his view of humanity and the way people lived. Uh, he and, and I think to myself, well, wouldn't it for you? Uh, just try to imagine it. You know, we do this every time, but just put yourself in his shoes. You're 20 years old. 
You know, most people are in college. It's kind of the, you know, the, the highlight. They're really starting to form their views and values and opinions, right? Well, you're 20 years old. You live in this small village. Friends of yours come over to visit. You guys study all night. Well, one day they're perfectly healthy, and then the next minute they're not. And within 24 hours, they're the sickest they've ever been, and two days later they're dead. You can't go get doctors because most of the doctors have died. The priests in the towns have died left and right as well. People, they're on the front lines. And especially in England, they were just pretty much wiped out. Uh, this disease is gross. I mean, we won't go into too much details. I, I know we have kids that sometimes listen, but I mean, this is, people are dying not peacefully in their sleep. It's an agonizing, painful, highly disturbing way to go. And there's hardly anyone to bury the people. So many people died. They didn't, they couldn't find people to bury them. And so they were just kind of being left around. In Wycliffe's village, over two-thirds of the inhabitants died. I mean, imagine being 20 years old. You're in college. You're, you're having the time of your life, right? And, and two-thirds of every person you know in town dies. No other priest can help you. There's no doctors to be found. These are your friends. And, and then what does that do to your outlook? What does that do to you as a person, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally? What, what, how much have you changed, right? Uh, someone who knew Wycliffe said of him, he had very gloomy views of the conditions of humans and just humanity in general. And I think to myself, yeah, but wouldn't you? <laughs> it's not just, it's not just your town. You know, it's the whole country. It's not just your country, but it's all of Europe. In their eyes, I mean, this is this is the entire known world, the literal entire world is on fire figuratively it's burning and it's coming to an end right i mean at the time of recording this uh, the world is kind of going through this coronavirus that's been going around and uh you know that just pales in comparison to what kind of an event this was uh this is in their eyes the end times this is this is it this is like they they think it's going to wipe out all of humanity so it's a terrifying time to be alive and there's there's no one to go to for help, right? The church literally cannot help. The Eucharist, the Pope, none of them could stop what was happening to the world. And so where do you, you know, where do you go to find answers? Where do you go to find hope in that time? And for him, he went to his Bible. He's, he started reading his Bible fervently, looking for hope, looking for answers. And he's seeing the world change around him. We got into this a little bit in that Johann Teller episode, but so many priests had died that they were just hiring anyone to be priest that that had a remote interest in it with very little if not no training at all and so these priests in air quotes uh, are now trying to minister but they have no theological training a lot of them were even illiterate they they, they can't even read and so it's a time of a, a, a very spiritual darkness with very few spiritual answers to the questions that the whole world is having now he accounts reading his bible being terrified he was he was i mean honestly he was reading it hoping that god would spare him and it makes you have to ask yourself you know like what would you do in that when what would you do in that situation when the government when the church you know when everything you look to for structure is collapsing and going away what do you cling on to like where do you go for answers after the disease passes it comes in 1348 it kind of leaves england in 1352 but society is just not the same uh, people are kind of waking up to the world that they had been living in and realizing that things are not running the way they're supposed to. Uh, nothing is as it should be. You know, as Joel mentioned, the the communion didn't save them. The Pope didn't save them. The priest didn't save them. All these rituals they thought were supposed to help them didn't. And it made them ask a lot of questions. 
Uh, it may also be important to, we need to go back a little bit into England. Um, England back then wasn't the England we know today. Uh, we literally have maps that tell us that England was like almost completely covered in forests. It was a lot more rural. Most people didn't read or write. The major language of the country at this time uh, in court that the kings would use was not even English. They were talking in French until like the middle of Wycliffe's life. So this is just a really different time. If you're thinking of England today, you're just thinking of the wrong country. Uh, churches back then in England were, if I can you know, be a little bold, they were terrible. Uh, the priests couldn't read Latin, and so they were basically taught by a deacon in a nearby town or church, and they were supposed to give the information they were taught to their church members. And some of them did this, and some of them didn't. And some of them would just collect the paycheck and basically live in a city, and they wouldn't even be anywhere near their church homes. But regardless of what they were doing, their parishioners were required to show up at the church at you know in the morning, and uh, whether or not the priest was a part of their lives, that was what you did. And if God was punishing them, this was his punishment and wrath on Europe. You could see what in Wycliffe's mind God was most angry about. He was angry at them, the priests, the people who were just living this high, basically this luxurious life in the city, but getting paid not to do their jobs. If God was going to end the world and you were trying to figure out who was guilty, Wycliffe was like, we're the ones guilty. We caused all this. And I mean, you know, we're, we're skipping over stuff, maybe in a future episode, but we're we're not even looking at the Hundred Years of War. Uh, we're not looking at the mini Ice Age, the famines. There is so many things that made this pretty much one of the worst times to be alive. You can pretty much imagine. Yeah, but one thing that I do want to touch on is this. It's called the St. Scholastica Riot. And like I mentioned earlier, crime was kind of a big problem in this area. And he's specifically in the town of Oxford during this riot. And doing research for this episode, I don't know why. It kind of made me think of like, I think of like, mobster 20s new york you know where you have these different gangs that are constantly getting into shootouts and fights and stuff like that i don't know if that's an accurate description but that's what it made me think of reading the account of this riot that broke out it's a weird story and it's difficult for us to kind of relate to today but the city of oxford had a lot of riots back in that day and there was this specific one that started because there were two students that didn't think they got good wine from a local tavern in town right and you know it I, I, we don't know to this day. It might have been good wine, might have been bad wine. We will never quite know. But it started this this brawl between the bar owners and the students that were upset with the type of wine that they were given. And this escalated to the extreme. You had everyone in the bar picking sides and jumping in on the fight, and like a movie, it just escalates. It goes on for three days where the entire city becomes involved, and you have people from the town fighting, essentially college students, and so they retreat to the university there, the Oxford University, and barricade themselves in, and that starts this kind of stalemate, the standoff that happens, except the town then goes and tries to recruit people from the countryside to join in on this kind of siege of the university. This, like, little miniature war in Oxford happens over a disagreement on whether the wine was quality wine or not. And it gets dark, it gets violent. Several students are killed. Anyone that, you know, is, any students that are out and about in the town are beaten to death. This story is crazy, and we could go on and on, in all honesty about it. Uh, by the time the townspeople are done, uh, the king is actually in a nearby village visiting, and he sends a message. He's like, if anybody continues this, they're gonna die. 
and nobody listens. They scalp people. Um, about 100 people end up dead, some of them scholars, some of them townsfolk. Uh, the dead bodies of the scholars are actually thrown into like rivers and outhouses. They were treated just terribly. And we mentioned this story for two reasons. A, it's a really good example of just how society is kind of falling apart, how people don't really like the priests and everything anymore. Things are going pretty bad. This happened in 1355, so just you know a couple years after the outbreak. And the other, other reason this story is important is because Wycliffe was at Oxford at the time. He lived through this. He was at school during this time. We don't you know, know where he was in the story, but he would have gone through it. And you could see how he had that poor view of humanity because of it. Um, and we can keep going. Honestly, I had to cut so much stuff out of this episode. Just highlights of his life. He was, you know, the peasant's revolt is a part of his life. He ends up in trial before the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, his, he has a friendship with Geoffrey Chaucer, very famous writer. Um, this group called the Lollards or Lollards uh, come after him. And so many things that happen because of him. But just to give you the most important things, uh, thing, it, we'll just have to save the rest for future episodes, honestly. But he's most famous for translating the Bible because of how much scripture uh, preserved him during that outbreak of the Black Death and his respect for everything uh, Roman, the church just went into the pits, basically. He believed that the Bible needed to be in everyone's hand. And that Bible translation uh, that he ends up doing and the idea of commoners having the Bible is uh, honestly what leads to John Huss being burned later on in history and ends up you know, leading to the Reformation years later. He also absolutely could not stand, went after transubstantiation. Uh, this is a theological term, the idea that, you know, when Roman Catholics take the uh, Eucharist or communion, that the bread becomes the body of Christ and the wine becomes his actual blood. And Wycliffe was not having that. He basically was like, that's not true. Um, he went after the clergy. He's like, you guys are living really nice lives while the commoners are struggling and dying of famine. Um, he just was just a, a totally a tornado, an earthquake, just shaking everything up around him. Um, his reforms would end up getting him the nickname the Morning Star of the Reformation. He lived a hard life, uh, but he was faithful to God, and it would seem that that faithfulness really did change the world. Yeah, and what I love about uh, this sermon in particular is he, he spends it talking about spiritual battles. The title of the sermon is called The Spiritual Battle, and it's you know, he talks about taming our, our flesh. He compares it to taming a, a wild horse. And he also warns pretty sternly against people that choose their flesh over the grace of God, over the gift that God gives us. And he, he, he warns about what he says, the fires of hell. He's pretty bold in it. And, he, you know, here's a man that's had so many difficulties in life. He's seen so much loved ones around him die. He's gone through so many violent acts and he's he's gone through it again choice this is pretty pretty agreed upon some of the the literal worst times you could ever be alive there's a lot of difficulties about physically living through that life a lot of probably physical pains a lot of probably physical emotions that he felt during that time but he doesn't spend his his sermons talking about physical elements he spends it talking about the spiritual realm and that's because he knows an eternity you know that's all that matters you you can't focus on what's holding you back here in life you got to focus on what really matters in the scale of eternity this sermon is honestly a pretty dark sermon um it, you know it almost needs to come with a warning label like sinners in the hands of an angry god does there's brimstone he's talking about what it was like for these souls who you know didn't make it to heaven 
it's a tough sermon to listen to, but I also think it's so important that we do, that we as Christians don't shy away from listening to those sermons. We may not like them. Let's be honest. It would be weird if we did, but that doesn't make the truth any less important. And and these reminders of hell and that everything we do has an eternal consequence, I think sometimes is absolutely necessary. It's so easy to get caught up in the here and now and to not remember that, you know, Jesus Christ wasn't focused on the here and now. He was focused on eternity. And I think that's why it's sometimes great to hear sermons from people who live these really hard lives like Wycliffe did, because they can, they have a better perspective. They see eternity, I think, a little bit more clearly than they do. They, he, among all people, knows just how empty this world is and how quick you can lose it all. Almighty God says through Holy Job that all man's life upon earth is fighting, that it is a battle against spiritual enemies and sin. St. Paul says, clothe yourselves in the armor of God that you may firmly stand against temptations and deceits of the evil one. Man's physical body is like clothing that covers and hides his soul. His body is like a horse, which takes his master through many perilous journeys and battles. And to this horse, that is his body, belong many rewards. If he will bear his master through the perils, for no knight can securely fight against his enemy unless his horse is obedient to him. And the soul can't fight against the ways of the fiend if the flesh lives in its own lust and will. As soon as man begins to live wisely, he flees lusts and desires, which he used to do and loved, and will bow himself under the yoke of God's holy doctrine. This is when his enemies begin to attack through wiles, frauds, and temptations so that he may fall. And therefore it is necessary that his horse, his body, be meek and helpful so that his master will overcome his enemies. For if the soul and the body agree together, and either of them helps the other in the spiritual contest, the devil will flee and be overcome. For Holy Scripture says, Withstand the fiend and he will flee from you. But it is a great folly for any man to fight while riding an untamed horse. And if the horse is wild and ill-taught, the bridle must be heavy and the bit sharp to tame him. And if the horse is easy and obedient to his master, his bridle will be light and smooth also. This bridle is called abstinence. With abstinence, the flesh will be restrained, so that he does not have all his will, for he is wild and willful and hates to bow to goodness. With this bridle, his master will restrain him, to be meek and bow to his will. For if he will fight without a bridle upon him, it is impossible to do anything but fall. But this bridle of abstinence should be led by wisdom, so that nature is bound by strength and the wildness of the flesh is restrained by this bridle. Otherwise, his force will fail at the moment of greatest need and harm his master and make him lose his victory. This bridle must have two strong reins by which you may direct your horse at your will. Also, they must be even and neither pass the other in length. For if you draw one faster than the other, your horse will go the wrong way. Therefore, if your horse will go along evenly, it is important that you draw the reins of your bridle evenly. If one rein of your bridle is too loose, when you suffer your flesh to have its will too much, in eating and drinking, in speaking and sleeping, in idle standing or sitting, in vain tale-telling, and all other things that the flesh desires beyond measure and reason, the other rein of the bridle is held too tight when you are too stern against your own flesh, and withdraw from it which you reasonably should have. 
Whoever pulls either of these reins unevenly will make his horse lean and lose his right way. If you suffer, your flesh will have its full liking. Those that should be your friend become your decided foe. If you withhold that which you need to sustain yourself as it need requires, then you destroy your body's strength and it might so that it won't be able to help you. Therefore, sustain your horse that it won't fall or be too feeble in its time of need. And withdraw from those that might turn you to folly. Yet your horse needs to have a saddle so that you may sit on it well and look right in others' eyes. This saddle is humility or meekness. That is, whatever you do, let it be done with good consideration. Let it be born of wisdom from beginning to end and all the parts between. Have it done sweetly and meekly and with mild appearance. That is, that you mildly suffer slanders and scorns and other harms that men do against you, and neither grieve yourself in word or in deed. And though your flesh may be aggrieved, keep mildness in heart, and let no wicked words come out of your mouth or tongue, and then you will be made glad. As the prophet says, the mild and the meek in suffering will have joy forever. Those who act mildly with meekness and love, whatever they do, whose outward and inward semblance and cheer are so mild and lovely in word and deed, others may be turned to good by their example. This virtue, which is called meekness, that is, mildness of heart and of appearance, makes man gracious to God. And also good in man's sight, as a saddle makes a horse seemly and praiseable. You'll need two spurs for your horse, and keep them sharp, so that you may prick your horse when it is needed, so that he doesn't wander off the path. For many horses are slow if they are not spurred. These two spurs are love and dread, which of all things will most stir men to the way of heaven. The right spur is the love that God's dear children have for the lasting happiness that will never end, and the left spur is dread out of the suffering of hell which is without end and can never be counted out. With these two spurs prick your horse if he is dull and unwilling to stir himself to good, and if the right spur of love is not sharp enough to make him go forward on this journey, prick him with the left spur of dread to rouse him. Separate your soul from your body by inward thought. Send your heart before the throne, and do as a man would do if he had two dwelling places, but must choose one to stay in and never leave. Certainly, if he were wise, he would send some of his near friends to see and investigate the condition of these two places before choosing. Two places are ordained for a man to dwell in after this life. While he is here, he may choose by God's mercy which one he will. But once he is gone from here, he may not do so. For wherever he first arrives, whether he likes it or not, there he must dwell forever. He will never again change his dwelling, though he may hate the choice he made. Heaven and hell are these two places, and in one of them each man must dwell. And heaven is more joy than may be told with tongue or thought. And in hell is more pain than any man may suffer. With these two spurs, awaken your horse and send your heart before his throne as a secret friend to check these dwelling places. In hell you will find that all your heart may hate and lacking all good. Hot fire burning, darkness, brimstone, hunger, and thirst that will never be quenched. There is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in thick darkness. Each hates the other as the devil and curses the time that they lived in sin. Above all things, they desire to die, and are forever dying. But they will never fully die. They never will, but forever dying live in pain and misery. They hated and feared death while they lived here, but now they'd rather have it than anything else. Souls that are there will be dark and dim, offensive and disgusting to see. The bodies will be heavy and charged with sin, so that they will move neither body nor limb, but have all the woes that will grieve them. They will think upon no good. 
and have no knowledge but of their pains and sins that they have brought them there. And of all this pain and much more sorrow than we can ever speak of, the end will never come. Do you understand this is the result of our sin? And no excuse can be made to fix it. If you realize that our sin will bring such everlasting pain, then you would fear your skin off your flesh and cut yourselves to pieces before you would willfully commit another deadly sin. Use the spur of dread to awaken your body and move it forward. Cause him to flee deadly sin, the price of which you will pay when you are in bitter pain forever. Some will call them small sins, but you need to stay alert. For St. Augustine says that many little sins draw a man to perdition, just as well as one deadly sin might. Many drops of rain can make a great flood. Water entering little by little into the ship's bottom will sink the ship just as much as a great wave will suddenly. And since God is displeased and dishonored by each sin, each sin is not small, but great. Here some have defiled their souls with many deadly sins, and others with innumerable small sins. But dread must help them all to seek forgiveness of all their sins and to flee the pains of hell. They must forsake all this world and flee into desert places to learn to love Jesus and wail over their sins and the sins of men. Some souls are cleansed here through fire from tribulation and persecution. They meekly suffer for the truth of God. They have much trouble because they would live good lives. Some also are cleansed through the fire of God's love. For God might love a man's soul, and in his great grace he would cleanse him in this world. And this is the right spur that should quicken your horse to speed up, that you learn to love Jesus Christ with your whole life. And send your thoughts into that land of life. There is no disease that there of any kind, neither age, nor sickness, nor any other grievance. Men must learn courtesy and wisdom, for in heaven all evil will be cast out. And whoever goes to God will find a gracious fellowship, the orders of angels, and of all holy saints and the Lord above them, who gladdens them all. There is plenty of good there, and a lack of all things that may grieve you. There is fairness and riches, honor and joy that each man will feel, love and wisdom there that will last forever. There is no disease like those that man suffer here, no hypocrisy or flattery, no falsehood, envy, or evil intent. There are no thieves and tyrants, no cruel and greedy men that pillage the poor, no proud men and boasters, no covetous and tricksters, no slothful and lusty. All of these are banished out of that pure land, for there is nothing that men may fear, but only enjoyment and joy at will, melody and songs of angels, bright and lasting bliss that never ceases. Man's body there will be brighter than the sun ever was to man's sight, as the light of the sun suddenly flees out of the east into the west so will the blissful, without any trouble, be where they want to be. And though they were sick and feeble while they lived here, they will be strong there, that nothing will move against their will. They will have such great freedom that nothing will be contrary to their liking. The saved bodies will never have sickness, weakness, or grievance. They will be filled with joy in all their senses. For just as a cup that is dipped into water is wet inside and outside, above and beneath, and also all about, and no more fluid can be inside it, even so will those that are saved be fully filled with all joy and bliss. They will have endless life in the sight of the Holy Trinity, and this joy will surpass all others. They will be in complete security. They will never lose that joy or have any other kind. They will be filled with wisdom, for they will know all that is, was, and will be. They will have full knowledge of the Holy Trinity, the might of the Father, the wisdom of the Son, and the goodness of the Holy Ghost. 
For in the sight of the blessed face of God, they will know all things that may be seen of any creature. For as Augustine says, they will see him, both God and man, and they will see themselves in him also. All things that are now hidden from man, he will then see and know. They will also have perfect love for each other, for everyone will be in one accord. And these joys, and many more than a tongue of man can fully tell, will be for those that are saved, both in body and soul, after the day of doom. This is the right spur, which is stir men joyfully to love Jesus Christ, and to hasten in the heavenly way. For so sweet is the bliss there, and so great, that whoever might taste a single drop of it should be so enraptured in their love of God, and of heavenly joy, that he would have a languishing to go there at once. For that person, all the joy of the world will be a pain to him. This love should move such a man to live more virtuously a hundred times more than any dread of the pain of hell. For perfect love will put out all dread and cleanse the soul from filth. It will make it to see God and to flee to heaven by desire, hoping to dwell there in a world without end. Chola mentioned in the the biography section just a little bit about the coronavirus outbreak and you know we are in no ways and minimizing that it's an important thing and we hope all the doctors and people and lord willing everyone gets where they need to go but i do think we overestimate and these these panics we feel when an outbreak or disease happens uh, they're outside of our control they go against our plans and i think they remind us just how fragile things are. We think life is going one way, but it really just takes a disease that you have no control over to enter into your life and everything uh, changes. And when those moments like that are around you, I think it's important to really bear in mind, who am I putting my faith in? Am I putting my faith in myself and in the career and in the world and the home and all that stuff I built up? Or is my faith in Christ? And do I look at the people around me and I do I really care about their souls? I, again, I think this sermon is really important to take a hard look at your life and think about that. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Jonathan Theody. Always excited to have Jonathan Theody narrate an episode. He hosts the Book It podcast. Check out the Book It podcast to see some uh, Christian book reviews he does. If you want to see the transcript for today's episode, visit our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can view the transcript for today's episode and all of our episodes here at Revive Thoughts. This episode, uh, very excited to do it. Obviously, I have like a weird desire and interest in the Black Plague and stuff. So you see those. We get excited and do a lot of history on that. But also, really excited to do this episode. We've wanted to pull out a John Wycliffe sermon for a long time. It took a while to find one, and it took a long time to edit it, find the right speaker. There's a lot of work that goes on in the background with these episodes and sermons and things that you guys don't always see, uh, but we enjoy doing it. It's a lot of fun, and that's just why we honestly want to say thank you. If you guys weren't out here supporting us, um, liking the show and, and, and telling others and leaving us reviews, we wouldn't be able to you know get these kind of things and do the hard work to bring you sermons like this, literally 700-something-year-old sermons from way back when, uh, but I think they edify us today. So thank you so much for that. Uh, please give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, follow our show wherever you can. We try to send out lots of stuff throughout the week to make it worth your while. And uh, if you haven't already, um, please tell a friend, let someone else know what we're doing here so that uh, the show will continue to grow and others will get to hear sermons like this. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Thoughts.
Hello, I'm Terry Young of the History of the Early Church podcast. Since the beginning, sermons expounding on the Holy Scriptures have been a central element of the Christian faith. From the Church Fathers of Antiquity, to the scholars of the medieval and early modern periods, and all the way up to the present day. I hope you enjoy Revived Thoughts. And once you're done with this episode, come on by and check out the History of the Early Church podcast, where we journey through a detailed narrative of Christianity's first four centuries, exploring the great events of the early church and the lives of the apostles, fathers, martyrs, and other Christians who lived in the ancient world. I hope you enjoyed that podcast, and if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.